So now if you'll open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Hopefully you have your sermon notes in front of you. Does everybody have sermon notes? you have your outlines? Okay. Um, you know, last week, Alan served us so well in his sermon on Daniel 7, and he, he called it God Wins. Love the succinctness of the title. I love that, that he, he worked hard to attach to that little pithy phrase, because it could just be taken just as a little pithy phrase but it had great depth and worth because it was attached to sound theology. We don't want to just be people with pithy phrases. We want, we want there to be a reason for the hope that's within us. We want to say things memorably and succinctly, but oh, we want people to see the depth and breadth of God and His love and His grace. And so we love to attach sound doctrine to those kind of phrases. Alan and I talked about his sermon Sunday morning prior to his preaching. I told him that, you know what I thought though, from, from Daniel chapter 7 to the end of the book, I think the sermon titles of every chapter here moving forward should be, please pray for your pastors. I think every title from now till the end of the book should be, please, so every Sunday, get up, please pray for your pastors. That's the title of the sermon this morning. And the reason I say that is because chapter 7 through 12 are, are, are really the reasons that some pastors simply refuse to preach through the book of Daniel. Uh, chapter 7 and 8 have similarities. Daniel 8 provides more specific details in regard to the Medo-Persian Empire, and that'll be symbolized as a ram, and the Greek Empire, and that'll be symbolized as a goat. And then focuses even more on one particularly evil ruler, that came out of the Greek Empire. So as we study this morning, can I ask you just one thing? Those of you who are sports fans, please exercise self-control not to think of the GOAT as Michael Jordan or Tom Brady, okay? The GOAT is Greece, okay? Would you read with me? God's inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, and divine perspective-giving word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue him from, the, from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. As I was considering this, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. 
He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground. He trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act act and prosper And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And then I, Daniel, had seen the vision, and I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face before him, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper in his hand. And in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. And then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, those last few words drive us to you in prayer. If Daniel didn't understand it, we humble ourselves this morning to make no assumptions that in, in and of ourselves we can understand this. But we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit that inspired it and enables your people to understand it. So we submit to you this morning, Lord, speak to us. We are listening. We want to be transformed by what we hear. And we want to live on mission for you because we have a divine perspective of the future that will give us daily perseverance to fulfill all that you've called us to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when was the last time you faced a situation in which you felt you faced a really difficult time in your life? And, and because it was ongoing, it was a hardship that kept, just kept knocking at your door. You fell asleep with it on your mind. You woke up with it on your mind. And it made you feel lost. And, and you had all the feelings of being lost. Sometimes that was fear. Sometimes that's worry. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's impatience. But in reality, you weren't lost. But you had lost your perspective. And then when someone helped you regain your perspective, even though you still needed to walk through the difficult time, it didn't take the difficult time away. But now you could go through it because you had a regained perspective. Even though you were on a hard road, you knew it was the right road. And you knew the hard road would challenge you. It would test your faith. But you knew that it wouldn't last forever. And that you would indeed make it to the end. I remember feeling like that on our first trip to Asia to work with a church planning pastor there that we dearly love. And because of some persecution that goes on in that region, I'm not going to use his name. I'm just going to simply give him the name Tommy. As we were driving up, this is one of my, our first trips there. And as we were driving up one of the many mountainous roads of this region, I don't think I've ever whistled into it. I hope that didn't kill people. Um, these mountainous roads, you guys, many places, they're barely wider than a car. And they're roads that have very few guardrails, even though they're on the edge of cliffs. And the drop is likely certain death. Roads that were not one-way streets, <laughs> but they were two-way traffic. And people driving way faster than I thought that than anyone should be driving on those roads. Roads that when you came to a vehicle traveling the other way, which were often buses, crammed so full of people that passengers actually sat on top of the buses. There appears to be no earthly way that either vehicle can move forward. It's almost like an Asian form of the game chicken. You know? I found myself feeling very lost with the associated fears that go with it. And I was wondering, why didn't I take a Dramamine <laughs> so I could have slept through this? It's too often my answer to life. 
too often, don't you want to just kind of sleep through it? I didn't want to have to worry about all of this. Multiple times in my proud Texas way of thinking, I, had, I thought, there has to be a better way <laughs> to do this. There has to be a better way to get where we're going. This is just too hard. I don't know if we're going to make it. Well, I'm here, which means we made it to our mountaintop destination. And Tommy asked if I would join him early the next morning because he wanted to show me a scenic overlook as the sun rose. I don't know. We didn't talk about it, but I think the Lord had him do this. Because when we sat down at the overlook the next morning, he pointed out three things. First, the breathtakingly beautiful mountain ranges that surrounded us that I couldn't see on the hard road. I needed to see what was at the end, right? So there's, there's that one thing. That's, that was something. And then, um, instead of now looking up, he wanted me to look down, and he showed me the road that we drove up on. It didn't make the road any nicer or any easier, but you realize it was the right road. Even though it was hard, it was the right road. And even though it was taking longer than I thought it should take us to get there and wondering if we were ever going to get there, something about knowing you're on the right road kind of keeps you going, doesn't it? Even though it's hard. And third, ah. Uh, he showed me the village. Where almost no one had even heard the name Jesus. Wow. Well, that was a perspective giver, wouldn't you say? I had a perspective that I didn't have the day before. And even since then, I still at times feel lost and fearful on the many other mountain roads we've driven on all of our other trips there. But now, I have a perspective that we're on the right road, regardless of how hard it is, and we're being guided by an expert. I think Daniel 8 is going to serve us in a very similar way. Especially these days when God has us on a road that seems to get increasingly worse. I almost think that all the potholes in Midland are good reminders that the road may get harder before it gets easier. We're living in days when it's easy to feel lost, overwhelmed, almost like you're suffocating with your news feed. You know, it's just bad news after bad news, fearful item after fearful item. It's easy to feel lost and overwhelmed as you watch the United States falling apart morally and socially and politically, days when it looks like China or Russia is about to become the most powerful nation on earth and, and how it seems like daily we're learning how their tentacles are already affecting the good old USA. Days when you hear Iran is only months away from having a nuclear weapon. Days when you hear that there are no beds at Midland Memorial Hospital because of the rapid increase of COVID. Or when you hear the doctor say that your test came back positive for cancer. Or when your child comes home to tell you they no longer believe in Jesus Christ and they want nothing to do with the church. 
when you hear the economists say that, that we should be expecting another major drop in the demand for oil with its associated loss of jobs. Or the days that may be very near when we hear people say it's illegal to teach the Bible. It's illegal to teach what the Bible says about two genders, only one human race that started with Adam, marriage only between a biological male and a biological female, abortion is the killing of an unborn baby. Days in which the need of gospel proclamation is more needed now than ever, and proclaiming that gospel may come at a price. That's why Daniel 8 is a gift to us. It's God giving us his perspective about the future and about earthly and demonic rulers that he is in control of and that he will expertly guide us day by day on the hard road that will bring him the most glory, bring us the most godly good and save many souls that he promised to save. So this morning, our main point is this. We need God's word to give us divine perspective about the future to enable us to have daily perseverance in our mission, even on the days our hearts are breaking, so that we can continue to do the business of the king. So I, heard, I hope you've just kind of sensed all of Daniel chapter 8 in that main point. First point is we need divine perspective about the future. And that's what Daniel 8 is so clearly giving us. This vision came two years after the vision that chapter 7 had taught us about. In chapter 8, Daniel receives another vision and he's trying to understand it. God sends the angel Gabriel to help him understand it. And Gabriel came near. Daniel falls on his face as a, as a dead man. And then a key passage, a key, I hope this stood out to you even while we were reading. Gabriel says that this vision is for the appointed time of the end. Now, if, this was, if we could do that cup of coffee moment and you and I were just having a heart-to-heart -heart talk, I'd love to be able to just hear, what did that mean to you? Which is an interesting talk when we're trying to understand the Bible. Because the Bible is not about what it means to us ultimately, is it? <laughs> the Bible is our doing the hard work to say, what did it mean when God inspired it? What did it mean? But I would wonder your first impression, what would it mean to you? What would it mean? This is for the appointed time of the end. You know, Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton looked at all of this and he devised... And I'm not, I can't even fathom the math that he used. But he devised that all this was saying that Christ would come again in 2060. I don't know if I'll be around then. But if I'm not and you are, could you have some sweet tea on me? Just to say, here's another. Another one bites the dust. Another, another uh, date setting time bites the dust. Is that what this appointed time of the end is about? Well, let's, let's dig in. Let's find out. The end here, you're going to see, is not describing the second coming of Christ. The end is what will come. This is what the context says. This is how Daniel would have understood it. The context is telling us that this is what will come after the years where evil is seeming to prevail. Prevail over a long time. Prevail over many changing kings and kingdoms. Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And, and in, in the midst of all that, 
It, it seems like the most evil human being that ever lived maybe at that point. The, one of the greatest persecutors of God's people ever to that point. A man named Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to dig into that in just a second. The end was talking about from the point of Daniel having that vision and hundreds of years later to the end when the temple had actually been rebuilt, the people of Israel were, were sent out back from exile back to Jerusalem. The temple was defiled horribly and people persecuted horribly and God brought an end to it. Evil will not prevail. Evil will not prevail. But that's what the end is speaking about, is the restoration of that earthly temple in Jerusalem. And there are many lessons for us to learn about that. So let's keep digging deeper. So God was giving Daniel a divine perspective to prepare him. A divine perspective, not just to prepare him. This is where, you guys, we have got to grow in our, our corporate understanding of the body of Christ. We, we have been made to engage with each other. We need each other. Because he's giving us divine perspective, not just so we can feel better. He's giving us divine perspective so we can prepare others for this road. Starting with the next generation of the kids in our very midst let alone our evangelistic efforts and our witness at work and all of those things. And isn't it kind of God to send Daniel an angel, Gabriel, whose name means God is my strength. We're going to need that to walk this road. The vision is not just a vision of the future, but of God's sovereign control of the future. This isn't Nostradamus. This is, this, is, this is God showing very specifically the, the, the next hundreds of years in a specific way, not to just say, see, what, see all the tricks I can do? It's showing us he's in control. Because there's so many times our world feels out of control, doesn't it? And all of us, we, we don't even have to talk about China and Russia and Iran and COVID, do we? There, there are some of us here in this room that we're, our hearts are sick just because of some personal fears we're going through. Isn't it good to know that God gives us books like Daniel to remind us God is on his throne. He's undefeated. And he's not going to lose you. He's not going to lose you. And so we get this picture of his being in control, in this case over Medo-Persia. Uh, over Greece and a lesser ruler coming out of Greece, and that would be Anti Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and, um, and he would not have the power of Medo-Persia or of Greece. But we're going to see why so much print, so much ink is spent on him. So he starts with the ram, one horn longer than the other. Longer horn came up last. It just exactly de describes history. The Medes came into power first, and then they were replaced by the stronger kingdom of Persia. When Persian kings were on a military march, it's interesting to know they carried a gold ram's head. Persia was led by King Cyrus and his successors. And our text says in verse 4 that no beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. Well, it seemed like no one could prevail against him until God was done using them. 
until God said, that's, you guys, listen, I don't care what our government wrestles with about term limits. Trust that the Lord has term limits. <laughs> okay. The Lord has term limits. So we don't need to freak out. I'm in favor. I'm still okay to be in favor of term limits, but God has term limits that are way better than the term limits we would come up with anyway. Then a goat with one large horn comes and it knocks Persia off its throne. And that goat was Greece under the rule. Remember it said one prominent horn under the rule of Alexander the Great. The phrase without touching the ground, for those of you who are old cartoon lovers, picture Roadrunner. Okay, remember just as he's going, me, me, I mean, you don't even, his feet don't even seem to be touching the ground. That's kind of this picture of the speed in which Alexander conquered countless nations. He describes this as the goat's powerful wrath that the ram couldn't stand up to him. He cast him down, he shattered him, he trampled on him. No one could rescue him from the power of the goat. And then suddenly the large horn of the goat is broken off suddenly. It seems like no one's going to stop him except God. And Alexander dies at the young age of 33. And Daniel is seeing all of this happen hundreds of years before. So let me just give a word of application here. This, again, it's not just God showing us the future. It's God showing us he's in control of the future. And I think there's, I think, you know how scripture talks about God laughing at the raging of the nations in Psalms. I think there's a little bit of laughter of the Lord in here. Because in Daniel 7, Alan, I mean, the, the beast Alan described were like, oh my gosh, these are nightmare dudes, you know? And then you go to Daniel 8, and it's a ram and a goat. I think Daniel 7 is how we feel when we look at these world powers if we don't have a divine perspective on them. And they look frighteningly terrifying. Like Jurassic Park. <laughs> I mean, so it's like seen from Jurassic Park, and you're watching that. I hate those movies because I'm just constantly, I'm sitting there, I'm, sit, I'm just waiting to be scared, right? I'm just waiting for, you know, the music starts getting weird, right? And it's building and it's building, and you know something's gonna jump out at you at any second. And you think, I'm ready, and I'm never ready. I'm never ready. It always scares me, and my kids laugh. I'm, it's terrible. So, but it's like, that, and, and this is where I don't want to make too, too light of it. You guys, I don't know what your nightmares look like. This was the worst nightmare of nightmares. This, this, was, this was wrenching to Daniel. And then in Daniel 8, we go from Jurassic Park to God's petting zoo. It's essentially because what God is showing us is, this is how these powers look to me. That to you, they look like Tyrannosaurus Rex on steroids. To me, I just tame them. <laughs> I just tame them and control them and tell them where to go and when to go. That's the, that's the good news of the, of the Bible, isn't it? It gives us this wonderful perspective. So now let's go a little deeper because the story gets a little harder. The four horns appear on the goat in, in chapter 8, verse 8, and, and they point us to what happened in Greece after the death of Alexander the Great. The four horns point to a fourfold division of the kingdom. Among the generals of Alexander the Great, Cassander, who was over Macedonia and Greece, Lysimachus, who was over Thrace and Asia Minor, Seleucus, who was over Syria and Babylon, and Ptolemy, who was over Egypt. 
And the focus, though, narrows even more in chapter 8 to zoom in on what the text calls a little horn. One who was an evil ruler that followed after the line of Seleucus, whose rule appeared to what our text calls, who spread to what our text calls the beautiful land. Did you notice that in your reading? Those are those things, guys, that as you're reading your Bible, just in your daily devotions, don't just rush over those things. Stop to go, wow, we're talking about all these kingdoms. And then, but all of a sudden, in the midst of all of these raging nations, there's a beautiful land. We know that to be Israel, even more specifically Jerusalem, and as we're going to see, even more specifically the temple. This ruler vividly demonstrates an antichrist agenda. He probably up to this point, though there are many antichrists, 1 John tells us, um, that he probably and prominently is one of the greatest examples of uh, a, a person empowered with the antichrist spirit. His agenda is against God and against his people. He doesn't just have different political platforms than we do. He hates God. And he hates God's people. The scripture so accurately describes Antiochus Epiphanes, which his, it was Antiochus IV. He gave himself the Epiphanes uh, moniker, It means God manifest. So from the very beginning, this is what he's doing. (laughs) And this this wouldn't be saying that Antiochus is a believer in God and he's just contending against God. Have you ever asked somebody this question? Have you ever noticed that in music or literature or whatever, people who say they're atheists get so mad at God? And they say horrible things about God. And they write all these things. And they put crucifixes upside down. And they, just do, they do everything they can to desecrate him. Here's a question to ask somebody. So you're an atheist? Yeah, I'm an atheist. You, you're a sissy for believing in God. You need a crutch and you're all the stuff that they tell us. I think we should say, why are you so mad about someone who you don't believe is real? Isn't that interesting? Don't say it that way at the end. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) That was my sinful heart rather than my wanting them to be saved and to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. So so he's saying, I'm God manifest. And, And as his rule just gets increasingly darker and more evil, the people, though, give him the name Antiochus Epimenes, not Epiphanes, but Epimenes, which means the madman or the insane one, which was more accurate. Verse 24 says, his power will be great, but it won't be his own. It'll be Satan's power and deception that are at work in him. And all of this operating only under the the sovereign power and wisdom of God who is using all things and all nations to, to bring about his glorious purposes on earth. Verse 10 tells us that he exalted himself in the heavenly realms. He, he exalted himself. He goes to war against God. He goes to war against God's angels in terms of, you're starting to see spiritual warfare. So Antiochus isn't necessarily going to war against God's angels, but, but demonic powers and rulers and principalities because we're not just wrestling with flesh and blood. So there's, there's, there's war going on in Jerusalem as well as in the heavenly realms. This reminds us that... Um, 
Um, hang on, I just I actually went ahead of my notes, so I can just, that's good, it saves me time. Some of the hosts and some of the stars he throws down, it's a picture of the persecution. The stars were used of the believers that would place saving faith in the coming Messiah. You remember Abraham said that, that out of you would come many peoples, many nations, and they shall shine, they'll be more numerous than the what? than the stars of the heavens. So it's already speaking about the stars being the believers putting their faith in the coming Messiah. Philippians 2.15 uses similar terminology and describes believers who shine like the stars, like lights in the darkness. History tells us that Antiochus murdered tens of thousands of Jews. He sold thousands of others into slavery. Thousands of others... In just depravity, did horrible torture to get them to recant their faith. He forbade the Jewish feasts. And you know what he did? On those Jewish feast days, instead of allowing the Jews to do their own sacrifices and ceremonies, he would do human sacrifices on 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 the Jewish feast days. He exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts. It's a reference that he saw himself as the one sent by God. He's the unholy priest. He's the one who would represent this false God to the people. He was the one people should fear. He was the one people should worship and serve. Verse 11 describes how he he ordered that all the ceremonial observances and sacrifices to God were, were forbidden. Circumcision was illegal. And the penalty for disobeying this was the death not only of the little boy circumcised, but also his mother. And it would be a public execution. Can you imagine the fear on the streets as you're watching this? Now, stop for just a minute. Think of all the things that we're going through right now. It doesn't look quite as bad right now for us. This is perspective, isn't it? I mean, and you see why, why that phrase was in the scriptures? How long, oh Lord? Where is your how long right now? I mean, what are you going through that is just taking far longer than you ever thought? And sometimes you're losing hope, and sometimes you feel like your, your grip on grace, your grip on Christ may fail. How long, oh Lord? This evil, it seems like it's winning. And doesn't it seem like that today too? He placed a statue of himself in the temple. People were bring, to bring offerings to the statue. But a primary target of his wrath was the temple because it was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where God met with his people. It was the meeting place between God and man. And he did everything to defile it. Truth was thrown to the ground. So the Torah was burned and torn, torn up like confetti. And he scattered the, 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 the shredded pieces of the Torah on the temple floor. If you had Torah, if you had your Bible, you would be killed. If they found you with a Bible, you'd be killed. And it seemed there was no way of stopping him. And then this transgression that makes desolate. In his blasphemous act of sacrificing a pig, an unclean animal on the altar burnt offering, and setting up a statue of Zeus in the temple, it's referred to in 1131, we're going to come to it later as the abomination of desolation. He is defiling the place where God meets with man. Be, Be listening for some gospel tones because you're going to hear it in just a minute. 
He was defiling the place where a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament time to reconcile sinful man to holy God. How long, O Lord? The text says 2,300 evenings and mornings. That's where Isaac Newton got his, went off went on his calculations. It's, it's debated amongst theologians whether that means about seven years, which actually is, is, works really well in regard to when Antiochus began persecuting the Jews starting around 170 B.C., it started with the assassination of the high priest and ended in 163 BC with the death of Antiochus himself. Others see it as three and a half years because it says morning and evening, so they divide it by two, kind of referring to the morning and evening sacrifices. And there are actually dates in terms of when the defiling of the temple took place to where the temple was restored that, that works for those numbers as well. So either number works. But here's what we should notice. I love that it gives a specific time. It's a long time. But it's a limited time. So hear that. What you're going through may seem long. But it's limited. God will see to that. Evil will not prevail. God is in control. It may be painful and frightening and difficult and confusing, but because God has given us a divine perspective about the future, it's not surprising. And isn't the surprise, isn't that sense of, could, is God really in control? No. If we take out the element that, oh, this is surprising, no, He loved us and He prepared us for this we can move forward. That's why God had Daniel write this down and seal it up. It was not only to prepare him, but to prepare him to prepare others like us. Isn't that something? (laughs) A bazillion years ago, it seems, that this book was written, not just with Daniel, not just with the Jews, but with you in mind. Oh, how God loves us. And the New Testament picks up on the same thing, doesn't it? Because there is still a time of waiting. There is still a time of persecution. You see in Matthew 24, 4 through 14, look what Jesus says. And Jesus answered and said, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many, many then will, will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
Second Thessalonians, Paul puts it this way, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Doesn't this sound familiar? Proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then when the lawless one will be revealed, listen to this, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. John Calvin says it really well. The faithful were informed beforehand of these grievous oppressive calamities to induce them to look up to God when oppressed by such extreme darkness. So well said. Daniel 8, we see the Antichrist attack the temple where God's presence dwelt. There is no earthly temple today, but there is a temple for the Holy Spirit, isn't there? The place where God dwells today, and that is in the church, his people. And his rage will be aimed at the church and seek to destroy it, to throw truth to the ground and deceive many who once had a confession of faith, but will fall away when this persecution comes. He had loves to attack the sacrifice, just like Antiochus. He talked, he, he it makes a big point of the sacrifice coming to an end. And isn't that where God plays, and that where the evil plays with our minds? It gets us to lose our confidence in the finished work of Christ. His work is finished. Nothing can stop his saving, forgiving love for you. Don't lose confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. He wants to minimize the importance of the Bible. He tries to cast it down as antiquated and bigoted and patriarchal and racist as he tries to destroy true worship and obedience. And from an earthly perspective, doggone it, it seems like he's winning. But none of these are outside God's sovereign power. In Christ, the future is as certain as the past. Future hope is based on past triumph. And that's the cross. And that's where I want to take you next. God tells us these things, not so that we can set dates about when he's coming. Or store, come on, Texas, or store up food and guns. But to press us close. If you want to. See, almost. Oh, if you. I'm pro all the amendments and everything, okay? But you guys, we live for a different reason. We are lights in a darkness. God hasn't called us to run and hide in our little fortresses. For years, people called the church the coward's castle. God forbid. It's the place where his spirit dwells. It's the place where he deploys people to do the very work that Jesus began until he comes again. That's why he tells us these things. 
Oh, he, he tells us these things so we can trust his word and we can transfer the gospel to the next generation, regardless of the presence of evil powers and satanic deception. And rumors of war shouldn't quench our faith. Rumors of war should reaffirm our faith. God said, that's what we need to tell each other. Hey, come on, hang on. Let's lift our countenances. Let's lift our countenances. He said this would happen. Let's let that strengthen our faith and, and resolve us in our mission. He's given us this divine perspective of his sovereign control of the future and his ultimate plan of final victory. How do we know that came? I'm talking as fast as I possibly can, okay? So here we go. This is so funny. It's like at the end of the service and we're starting our second point. If you need to, I'm going to keep going. If you need to go, totally, but would you please either get the manuscript from me or listen? Because the remainder of this, your your souls need. Your souls need, because it's just the word. We need the divine promise over a victory over sin and evil. So we need divine perspective, but we need the divine promise. And we need to remember the promise again and again. Verse 14 gives the foreshadowing. The sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Verse 25 talks about the end of Antiochus. History records him of having fallen out of his chair. Remember, he would not be slain by any human hand. There was an unseen hand. He fell out of his chariot. He broke countless bones, had many open ravaging wounds that got infected. He, got, he, he became infested with maggots. And the stench of him being eaten alive by those maggots caused his own military leaders to not even want to have anything to do with him. And then he dies in pain-ridden agony and bitterness. Jesus is the greater temple where God and man meet. You guys, the greatest abomination and blasphemy was not the sacrifice of a pig on the altar or the worship of Zeus in the temple, all of that Antiochus did. The greatest evil man and Satan could try to accomplish was not the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The greatest evil man and Satan could ever accomplish was to try to destroy destroy the greater temple. You remember how Jesus referred to himself as that temple? The perfect temple where God and man meet. That's where we meet God, don't we? That's, where, that's how we're reconciled to God. Thank you, Jesus. And it's the place where God and man meet. And it's in the person and work of Jesus and his death on the cross. The same hatred of God that motivated Antiochus Epiphanes motivated Pilate. It motivated Herod. It motivated the Jewish priests and the people who cried out, crucify him. God's temple on earth was destroyed. He made the utter and necessary sacrifice. And just as the temple was restored after Antiochus had died, there was a third day. And God restored the temple of his son when he raised him from the dead and guaranteeing to us and proving that no earthly power 
no satanic antichrist, not even Satan himself, can prevail against the church that Jesus is building. Last is the promise, and this is really the biggest application I think we need. So we need divine perspective about the future. We need the divine promise of full and final victory. And now, and now we come to our day today. Don't we need power to persevere? And it's so interesting how this ends. Verse 27, Daniel says, I was overcome and I lay sick for days. In other words, he was brokenhearted. He was broken at the thought of what future generations of his people would go through. Brokenhearted for the persecution of God's people. Even though he would never see it. I'll explain that in a minute. His life was so bound up with the advancement of God's kingdom that when it went through suffering, even though he saw it as, as the future suffering of God's people, when he saw them suffering, even in the vision, he suffered too. Oh God, I want to have more of your heart. This was so different than King Hezekiah. He had a similar destruction, a vision of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon. And if you remember that story, at first Hezekiah was afraid. But when he learned that the destruction was going to be after his lifetime, he just got up and wondered what was on TV. I mean, he, it didn't bother him. As long as I'm out of here, as long as God beams me up, as, God, as long as, as, as it's just I'm not going to have to go through that pain, I can live my best life now. Let me ask you, do we feel the losses suffered by our Christian brothers and sisters like we feel our own losses? Are we concerned about future generations of believers and what they will need to go through? And so that's why I said when we were looking at the kids today, this isn't playtime. When we talk about next generation ministry, when we talk about children and youth, we're being informed of what is ahead. And we want to prepare them, don't we? Don't we want to prepare them so that they don't have to be afraid, so that they can live on devoted mission for Christ, and so that they can prepare others? I keep telling you, there's nothing like holding your first grandchild to tell you how important it is to disciple the kids you have now because how you disciple them, there's going to be elements of how they're going to disciple them and there's going to be elements of how they're going to disciple them. And praise God, he's providential over all of that. And it's not ultimately, oh, I made the biggest mistakes ever and God, God tied God's hands behind his back. But it's that we, this, we can't see children's ministry and youth ministry as, as just playtime. That's why we don't do smokes and bells and whistles. That's why when we take them on retreat, they hear hour-long sermons and, they, and they're praying for another 30 minutes after the sermon. 
They play, <laughs> don't get me wrong, they play kickball and, and goofy games and all that stuff too. But you see, what it, there's, there's something. Do, let me, do you feel it? Do you, do, is your heart ever broken? Are we grieving at what's happening in foreign countries with our brothers and sisters? Are we grieving about the continued oppression against the church in the United States and, and how it's affecting our brothers and sisters? There is a time, precious ones, that our hearts should be broken. Are you more like Hezekiah? Just beam me out of here, God. I'm looking forward to that. Just, let me get, just give a word there. You know, there. Everyone in this room, there's different views of the end times, right? Different views of when Christ's coming, millennium, all of that stuff. I just would ask you this. If you, if you believe in a rapture, listen, if that happens, I'll high five you on the way up. But don't treat it like Hezekiah. I think that's one of the problems with, with that rapture view is, is it's like, man, as long as we go, you know, there's going to be people left behind. How can that not break our hearts? And that's why our commitment to you as pastors, we're not, we're not trying to prepare you for a rapture. We're wanting to prepare you to walk with Jesus until the end. That's our commitment to you. And I hope that resonates with your heart. I hope that's what you would want us to do. Not to prepare you for the great beaming up, but the, the great perseverance as we live on, as witnesses for Jesus. But there's a time that we can't just lay in our sick beds and brokenhearted, is there? Did you see what else he did? In his brokenness, and you guys, sometimes we have to serve the Lord with a broken heart. So what does Daniel do? He gets up. And he goes and does the king's business. Such a good lesson for us. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. This is in your notes. He returned to the duties to which God had called him. He didn't retire from the world in view of the evil days that were coming. Nor did he go to the opposite extreme and live on the high of visionary excitement. I thought that was really interesting. Instead, he did his duty. Martin Luther loved this. Even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Isn't that great? John Wesley had a similar thing. He was asked what he would do if Christ was coming tomorrow, and he reached into his saddlebag, and he grabbed his diary, and he began to read out loud each and every appointment that he had between the moment of the question and the next morning. And he said, that, dear sir, is what I will do. We be faithful, don't we, until he comes. Moms, I mean, you grab that baby. What do I do? What do I do? Get up and do the king's business. Kiss that baby on the cheek. Pray for that little boy or little girl's salvation. Point him to Jesus every chance you get. Do your work as an act of worship to the Lord. Let your marriage be a display of the gospel.
Let our parenting and our discipleship reveal to our children and our children's children a little bit of what God the Father is like by the way they see God in Dad. That's what we do. We occupy until He comes. We be faithful with our witness and with our evangelism, with our ministry, with our vocation, because that's where the lost people are who need to have a heavenly perspective, divine perspective, who need to know the divine promise of victory over sin and Satan, and who need to know that there's a divine power to persevere to the end. Can you stand with me? There's a little commentary David Helm has, and uh, this is how he closed this section. He says, remember church, the final word will not come from a ram or a goat, but from the lamb. Well, Lord, here we are, and thank you, uh, Lord. God, wherever I, 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 if I misstepped in any of that message, would you just deafen your people from it? But the things that were true from your heart, oh God, write them upon our hearts. Lord, some of us here have experienced what it is to be broken. And uh, would you just move upon their hearts this morning that maybe for there's some people here that need to get busy. And then some of us probably are too busy and you see it because our hearts aren't broken. And we're just too busy and it doesn't bother us. Evil's not bothering us. Persecution's not bothering us. The plight of future generations. Oh God, would you, would you maybe cause the busy to be more broken and the broken to be more busy? We need your Holy Spirit. In all of it, God. How we look forward to your coming again, Jesus. We're so thankful that you have joined yourself to us and you're going to walk with us each step of this hard road. We want to persevere as gospel witnesses until we see your beautiful face and all nations have representatives around the throne of grace. To you be the glory, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.